we're back. And so it's been a while. And I was just wearing a suit for some reason. <laughs> this is the new thing on social media. We're trying to do some interesting things with branding to create some sense of credibility because you got all these people on social media, unlike the people who listen to this podcast who have no idea who I am. And so we talked to Ryuji Chua, who's an amazing guy who just is brilliant, a genius when it comes to comms. And he told us one of the things you have to do on social media is create a brand. You've got to show people instantly, not just what you're trying to say, but who you are. And because a huge part of who I am and what I'm trying to do is defend the right to rescue as a lawyer, I started wearing a suit. But thank God on this video and for this podcast, I've taken the suit off so you don't have to see me looking like the dork that I actually am. But um, the other thing we decided to do is we start this podcast um, revolving around the Simple Heart blog. And for those of you who don't read the Simple Heart blog, first of all, what's wrong with you? Go read. I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, we got some feedback that a lot of people don't like reading my 5,000 word articles on Substack because that's really boring. <laughs> so, so we thought uh, for those of you who, and also, I mean, honestly, people are busy. And even if you don't think it's boring, you know, it's, it's harder to read something than to put your AirPods in and listen to something while you're driving to work or you're on the train, you know, or you're even going on a run. Right. So we thought we'd convert the blogs into a little podcast and, and I'm just going to kind of read them, but kind of riff off of them. Um, and we'll put them on YouTube too, just to see what you all think. But, uh, yeah, let's, let's just start with the one that we did today. And, and the one we did today and um, appreciate all the feedback I've gotten from a lot of people on this idea, because I think it's an important one, is how saving one hen can save billions. And, you know, one of the most common things I hear among people who I talk to about animal rights who might otherwise be really supportive of the movement is that the problem just seems too big, right? And you can totally understand that feeling when you look at even a single farm. And I've been to a lot of factory farms, and I've had this feeling myself many, many times Look at, for example, Raymar Ranch in Northern California, which is a mid-sized calf raising operation. There are 10,000 plus calf hudges on this one site, 10,000 cages where little baby cows are taken from their moms and stuffed in approximately 18 square foot crate for the first few months of their life. And it's an awful existence. But when we went into this calf raising operation, or, but I say we, I really mean Julianne Perry. When Julianne Perry and her badass group of women activists went into this factory farm and saved one cow, one calf, it was an extraordinarily difficult operation. And you might ask yourself, and I think Julianne and her team asked themselves, man, how, how are we going to save them all? And that makes people feel hopeless, right? It, you, you look at this one cow and how hard it is to save the one, and you realize there's 10,000 more. But the main point I want to make in this podcast is that this hopelessness that we often feel when we look at the scale of the problem just confuses the root cause of the problem. Because the fundamental problem we face is not that we don't have enough physical or financial resources to help all the animals and factory farms and laboratories and fur farms. Of course, we can't save all these billions of animals directly with our own hands and feet. The real problem, the root cause, is instead a problem with our institutions. And let me define that because a lot of people don't know what an institution is. From a social scientific perspective, an institution is just a rule, explicit or non-explicit, about how human beings operate. So these could be legal rules like laws, it could be social rules like fashion, they could be moral rules like you know the way we treat our elders. 
But social scientists like the Nobel Prize winning economist Robert Fogel have repeatedly found that these so-called institutions are the key to creating change at scale. And Robert Fogel himself used the concept of institutions and institutional change to explain how slavery came to an end in this country, despite being immensely profitable, leading right up to the Civil War. And how did these institutions change? Well, a powerful political movement shifted the norms of the nation, shifted the rules, implicit and explicit, by which human beings operated in the United States. So after this shift in institutions, all the resources that have been devoted to enslaving people were instead devoted to liberating them. So this is the power of institutions. And it is a more general phenomenon than just slavery. The norms and institutions of human civilization are kind of like a computer code that drive all of our individual behavior to pursue the objectives of our society. Sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse. The best and perhaps only way to solve a deeply ingrained problem in human civilization, like animal abuse, like racism, like sexism, like slavery, is to rewrite that computer code. But how do we do this? Surprisingly, for the issue of animal rights, the answer of how to rewrite the code starts with just rescuing one individual animal. Let's, let me just say it again. The answer to how we rewrite the code of our entire society starts with rescuing one animal. That might be surprising, but I'm gonna give you three reasons why that's true. The first reason is that stories are crucial to garnering attention for change. And the rescue of a single animal when done effectively is among the most powerful stories in animal rights. So the philosopher Yuval Noah Harari has written that our superpower as a species is our ability to engage in fiction, to tell stories. And the reason is stories are really important for getting human beings to cooperate at scale. Let's look at some examples. Even the founding stories of the United States or any nation state, the myths of a religion that bind people together, even the dreams of a social movement like the civil rights movement, all these are stories that bind people together towards some common endeavor. And because they're stories that live and evolve, these stories have the ability to evolve in the face of new challenges. Just consider how the American stories evolved the last 200 years. 200 years ago, people of color were things. Now the Constitution and the story of our founding has been changed and rewritten. It's evolved to recognize that human beings, whether you're black or white, are all deserving of basic legal rights. So when you look at the history of the human species, it's only a mild overstatement to say that everything we accomplish as a species, we accomplish through stories. But that just leads to a question. What makes a good story? The Harvard sociologist Marshall Gantz he was also a legendary organizer under Cesar Chavez, just an incredible guy. And we've actually talked to him a little bit. He's one of the people I chatted with before I started doing grassroots organizing at Direct Action Everywhere 10 years ago. Well, Marshall Gantz has looked at a ton of social movements and identified some of the elements of storytelling in social movements that have been crucial to creating change. And what he's found is that there are three crucial elements to a good story, a challenge, a choice, and an outcome. So a challenge is an obstacle to overcome. And the best-selling author, Daniel Coy, once put it this way, and I, I remember this from the time I first read it to the time, day I die. I'll remember this, this, this good lesson in storytelling that all of you should remember too, and it's quite simple. The bigger the challenge, the better the story, right? If you watch some superhero action movie and Spider-Man's trying to stop someone from jaywalking, it's like, uh, I... <laughs> Just not an interesting challenge. It's not that hard to stop someone from jaywalking. There's not a lot at stake. On the other hand, if Spider-Man's trying to stop someone from destroying the world, 
And his enemy is an omnipotent super mutant who can destroy a building with a flick of his wrist. That is a big challenge, right? And that's why action movies are interesting. That's why superhero movies are interesting because it's a great challenge. But it's not enough for there to be a challenge. There has to be an interesting choice, right? And oftentimes the choice involves some sacrifice. Probably all remember the, the line from Spider-Man, with great power comes responsibility. And one of the reasons Spider-Man becomes a superhero is because he makes the choice after realizing um, what he loses when he doesn't sacrifice himself and decide to become a superhero. His, his uncle Ben literally dies. And so he's faced with this incredibly difficult choice. Do I choose to basically give up my own freedoms, give up my friends, even my loved ones, because I know there are people who need me. And he makes that choice. And finally, the outcome. There's got to be some resolution. Um, we have to ask ourselves, what was it about the choice that led to the good or the bad result? Um, and every good story has some outcome. Otherwise, it's dissatisfying. Do you remember Game of Thrones, the last season, how bad that was? Because there was no outcome. It was just a bunch of people running around killing each other. And everyone was wondering, what the hell is that? That was a terrible story. So again, good stories have good challenges, good choices, and good outcomes. But there's one other element that's missing from Gantz's storytelling framework, and that is an identifiable protagonist or victim. So there's good scientific research showing that empathy requires an identifiable, unique individual. It can't be a stereotype, not just some random white person, black person, Chinese person, not some random pig, cow, or chicken. It has to be a unique individual because that's how we empathize. We identify the person as unique, but it has to be one person. And the way I explain this is, if you've ever tried to have a conversation with two people, who are talking to you at the same time, it's basically impossible, right? And it shouldn't be that hard. You might think like, well, why can't I listen to two people talking at the same time? That's just two people. But it turns out our brains have evolved to empathize with at most one person. Even one person is sometimes hard because we're really only able to hold the subjectivity of one individual. And that's usually our own feelings. Like when you think about feelings, we can feel our own feelings. It's very hard to feel another person's feelings. When you're trying to feel two people's feelings and understand two people who are trying to talk to you, it's virtually impossible. So asking human beings to empathize with billions of animals in turn is even more impossible. We don't have the processing power in these brains to engage in empathy at scale. What this means for advocates is that to engage the human mind in its capacity for empathy, we need to tell the story of one, not a billion. So when you look at all these elements of storytelling, you can see why Open Rescue is almost a natural structure for a great story. There's an incredible challenge. Animals are being abused and the industry and government are trying to cover it up. They're literally prosecuting us and putting us in prison for exposing their misconduct. And we have to make the choice. Do we risk everything, our own freedom, to try and free the animals? Or we just watch them continue to suffer? But there's also identifiable villains and victims and heroes. Right? They're individual human beings who show their faces transparently. They're animals whose stories we hear, not the 10 billion farm animals slaughtered and killed every year, but an individual like Mei or Lily or Ching. And there's something about that individual that makes for a dramatic story that can change the history of animal rights. And it's one of the main reasons that if you go back and look at the history of animal rights, and I've blogged about this, go check out the blog post I wrote about this. Open Rescue and Rescue over the last 40 years has had a dramatic impact. There have been waves of animal rights progress driven entirely by rescue. But it turns out that Open Rescue is also a vehicle to embed these stories in our most crucial institutions, like the law. So think about the last few hundred years of American history and the stories that matter most to our nation politically. 
and they are disproportionately stories that have unfolded in court. Rosa Parks, Susan B. Anthony, Roe versus Wade, Obergefeller. Honestly, even relatively trivial stories like the trial of Johnny Depp end up embedded in our institutions in really important ways because the courtroom is not just a platform for dramatic stories. It's a place where our most important stories are enshrined in our legal system. But here's the problem for animal rights. It is usually impossible to get animals into court. The legendary attorney Steve Wise just spent a lifetime fighting for the law to recognize that animals have some basic legal rights. And despite great sympathy from the public, he's yet to have a winning case. And Steve Wise is a good friend of mine. He's a brilliant guy. He's doing a better job than any human being on this earth possibly could do. And he can't even get animals into court. In fact, routinely, courts just throw these cases out right after they're filed on the grounds that animals have no standing to sue, even if they're being tortured and abused and held captive. Animals are invisible to the law. This again is where open rescue comes in. Because by openly rescuing animals and daring the government or the industry to charge us, we're leveraging our own freedom to force the court to address the issue of animal rights. Indeed, some recent conversations I had with some of the most prominent constitutional law scholars in the nation have convinced me that these criminal cases involving open rescue defendants are perhaps the most promising avenue for pushing institutional recognition of animal rights. Because unlike most court cases involving animals, open rescue invo cases involve a defensive, not an offensive assertion of animal rights. Let me explain that. A defensive assertion of animal rights is one where I'm asserting animal rights because I'm defending my own freedom. An offensive assertion of animal rights is an attempt to take away someone else's freedom. In courts and legal systems, partly because we're wary of taking away someone's freedom, are much more open to defending someone's rights than taking away someone's rights. And in criminal cases, we're arguing for animal rights from that defensive perspective, which ironically is offensively more effective. For that reason, these cases are much more likely to enshrine the story of animal rights into the law. But the third and most important reason that saving one life has immense power is that the rescue of an individual animal is the perfect mix of anger and hope. And anger and hope are what mobilize a movement. So a buddy of mine who's a sociologist at Stanford, Doug McAdam, great guy. Um, I've actually eaten vegan with him many times. He always eats vegan with me, even though he's not a vegan. He's super supportive of our work. But what Doug has found in studying social movements for the last 50 years of his life is that there are two key ingredients emotionally for social change. And he, he talked about this in a conversation we had on a podcast a few years ago. You should listen to that podcast. But actually, the best way to encapsulate his point is a stunning data point from the civil rights movement. Back in the 1960s, even as black people were getting lynched, police dogs were attacking them, they're being thrown in jail like Rosa Parks merely for exercising their basic civil rights, surveys showed that people in the black community were becoming more and more optimistic about the prospect for change. So it wasn't that black people weren't mad, they were super pissed, but they saw that the writing was on the wall, even though there were a lot of things being outraged by, even though their friends and family members were in some cases being killed, and it, huge number of people are being jailed, they saw hope. And that combination of anger and hope is what drove movement progress. In fact, Doug has coined a concept for this. It's called cognitive liberation to describe those two elements, shared grievance and shared hope that he saw not just in the civil rights movement, but in numerous other social movements throughout history. And when movements effectively combine these two sentiments, anger and hope, shared grievance 
and shared belief in our ability to create change, huge masses of people felt almost irresistibly compelled to act. And those masses, when they mobilized, were an unstoppable force for institutional change. Let's bring this back to Open Rescue. Open Rescue, perhaps more than any other strategy in animal rights, combined these two emotions, anger and hope. It focuses our attention on the situation that angers us most, an animal abused, tortured, and left to die on the floor of a factory farm, but doesn't drown us in despair because we take the animal out. We give them the life they deserve. It gives us hope for the future. In other words, open rescue is sort of like cognitive liberation come to life. It is literally the combination of those two emotions, anger and hope. I saw the power of cognitive liberation myself when I went around the country in April 2015 on an open rescue tour. It was called From Corporate Law to Climbing Barbed Wire. I spoke across the country about open rescue after our first open rescue in Sonoma County because even I couldn't imagine how many people wanted to be a part of it. In fact, just a few years later, back in Sonoma County where we did that first open rescue, it wasn't just two of us, me and Priya, going into a factory farm and taking animals out. It was hundreds of us. 500 people walked peacefully into a factory farm and started taking sick and dying animals out. And I published on my blog for the first time just a few days ago, footage from the entrance of that factory farm when we were walking out with animals in our arms and the police are walking with us. In fact, there's video footage showing them directing us how to get out. This is the power of cognitive liberation. Everyone wants to be a part of it, even the cops who are there at the action. So almost everyone I've asked to watch this clip, even people who were there in person and have probably seen it a hundred times, almost everyone I share this clip with, they start crying because they start realizing, you know, all these nightmares we've had, all these horrible visions of abuse, this kind of horror movie come to life, that all can change. And this is the vision. This is the strategy. This is the path to change. We have to save the individual animals. And by saving the individual animals, show the entire world how change can happen. We have to create cognitive liberation, not just for ourselves, but for the world. But this is also why the industry really wants to stop this, why they need to put people like me in prison to protect their corporate profits, because if that vision comes to life, then the industry is transformed and all their bloody profits will disappear. And so starting in exactly May 2018, um, the exact month when 500 of us walked into a factory farm, lo and behold, across the country, people are getting prosecuted for saving lives from factory farms. And we'd been doing this for years, no one cared. But the moment you all joined us, they started saying, this has got to stop because this has become a movement. And when it becomes a movement, the world will change. So I told you earlier that I underestimated the power of cognitive liberation of that combination of anger or hope. There's something else I underestimated. And the other thing that I underestimated is the power of cognitive liberation, not just to reach animal rights activists and vegans and people who sympathize with animal rights already, but ordinary members of the public. Because even I, when we went to trial, I expected us to lose a bunch of cases. I expected to go to prison. And I wrote about this in the blog. You can check out the blog. We'll put it in the show notes. As a Smithfield trial approach, I told all of you, you know, I basically sold all my things. I gave everything away. Uh, I gave Priya and my family and my bank accounts and told them, you know, make sure my credit card account doesn't go crazy. And no one, you know, like tries to claim they're me and, you know, buy a Ferrari or whatever it is. I mean, you can't buy a Ferrari with the assets in my accounts, but, um, so I was getting ready to go to jail. I told everyone we need to lose forward, right? We're going to lose. 
we have to harness what's called the martyr effect and make sure we continue fighting. And I, and I, and I still believe it. I think we can lose and still win. But something extraordinary happened in Utah. Even in a very conservative rural county where 90% of the people voted for Donald Trump, almost everybody's white, and one out of four people worked for the very factory farm that we quote unquote stole animals from and exposed to the public, even in that rural conservative county where honestly, we had a harder fight than any county in the nation, we didn't lose, we won. Eight random members of the public, a jury of our peers, acquitted us and said, we're gonna defend you against Smithfield and this factory farm. We're going to defend the right to rescue because we feel your anger, but we also are inspired by your hope. They saw that little baby Lily stumbling around on the floor of that factory farm, and I asked them in that trial, don't equip me on a technicality. Don't equip me just because you didn't think I took anything of value or because I didn't have criminal intent. Equip me as a decision of conscience because if you make the right decision today, there's a baby pig out there who's collapsed on the floor of a factory farm who will not starve to death. And honestly, even when I think about it now, it makes me a little emotional. I know it made some of the jurors emotional. In Merced and in Beaver County, Utah, we won these open rescue trials. When we delivered this closing argument, we literally saw jurors cry, you know, because there's something about that combination, knowing their animals so desperate, so horribly abused that they're literally emaciated and collapsed and starving to death. The most gentle and vulnerable creatures being tortured by abusive corporations. But then knowing there's hope for change. We can get that little baby pig out. We can get that starving chicken off the floor of the factory farm and take her to a sanctuary where she can live the life she deserves. We're approaching probably the most important trial in the history of open rescue. One that's not just about me. It's about the hundreds of other people who walk with us into that factory farm. It's about the thousands who joined that live stream and, and tweeted out and shared the live stream and asked the Sonoma County authorities to do something to help these animals. And about the millions of people across this country who believe that animals are not just things for us to abuse. They're not things at all. They're living beings for us to protect. And, and that is the message I left for the jurors. I asked them that question, who are you? Who are we? Who am I? Are we abusers of the most gentle creatures of this earth? Or are we caretakers? And if we are caretakers, we will defend the right to rescue. I think that's what's gonna happen in Sonoma County. But regardless of what happens in court, what matters most is whether you join us in amplifying that message, in showing the world, even if I'm sitting in a prison cell at the end of September, that we do have the right to rescue. We don't just have the right, we have the duty to rescue these animals. And by doing so, by saving one life, we can save the entire world. Thanks. Okay.